0: Now it seems trivial to have one trillion dollar bailout package and then a second trillion dollar bailout package, then a third trillion dollar bailout package. There comes a point where you say, what the hell is this money?
1: Welcome to the News Items Podcast. As our regular listeners know, we post episodes every Monday through Thursday afternoon. But on some Fridays, like today, for instance we release one of our interviews in its entirety, unedited, warts and all. Today, it's an interview with my friend and prolific author, Juan Enriquez. Hello, Juan. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you, John. Juan is a managing director at Excel Venture Management. He's a business leader, author, and academic, recognized as one of the world's leading authorities on the economic and political impacts of life sciences. He was the founding director of Harvard Business School's Life Sciences Project, and then founded Bioteconomy. Juan, in 2005, you described three forces, basically, that were tearing the country apart. One, debt. Two, speculation. And three, I guess you'd call it religious fervor. Where do things stand in 2021?
0: It's really interesting. When you look at history, countries fall apart all the time. Three-quarters of the flags, borders, and anthems at the UN today did not exist a few decades ago. And when you look at it in that context, it's actually harder to keep a country together than it is to tear it apart. The centripetal forces on countries are such that you've triple the number of countries in Europe, and you're not done yet. You may eventually have Corsica and the Basques and the Catalans and the southern Finns, and the Walloons, and the northern Italians, and it just goes on and on. And so when you look at the world today, it's become easier and easier to split countries because you have this overarching international system. So you can join a trading regime, you can join a monetary regime, you can be protected by international human rights, and and the cost of sovereignty has come way down. What's really dangerous about where we are in 2021 is that you've got a very polarized electorate. You, you spend several billion dollars every electoral cycle convincing 50.1% of the population that they should never, ever, ever associate with the others, that the others are not like them. You have an absolutely enormous debt overhang with debt just piling on no longer in the billions, but in the trillions which could lead to a substantial financial crisis and stress. And then you've got a notion that the core project of the nation, of what it means to be British, of what it means to be American, of what it means to be French, is being questioned by more and more groups internally. And in the measure that they tear down common myths, and the measure that they tear down common heroes, deservedly or not, Um, it again rips at that social fabric, at that common myth of why we are one, why e pluribus unum.
1: What role do you think technology plays in speeding up, I guess you would call it, this division or this untying? How how does Facebook or Life Sciences or Google uh, quicken the pace?
0: So, you know, for those of us who've got a lot of white hair Um, we, we remember back when you'd be on a phone call and somebody would interrupt you, the operator would interrupt you and say, long distance calling, do you want to hang up? And when you really thought about making a long distance call to your parents from school because it was so expensive. And so in that context, um, what you're looking at today is a almost seamless and free communication across cities across states across countries across the world and one of the consequences of that is that you're getting a lot of tribes and people you know very well and are spending a lot of time with who are non-geographically contiguous and so what technology has done is you know you used to be a citizen of a town you used to be a citizen of a city state you then became a citizen of an empire but usually there was a contiguous component to a big chunk of that identification. You know it, it was the homeland. And what technology has done, which is really interesting, is it's created homelands for people who identify as um, this group or that group or that group or that group in a seamless way without geographical, Contiguity. Um, you probably know some people from your, you know, MOOC games, multiplayer games, or from your Facebook. Better than you know your neighbors, and and that flips the logic of geography of a contiguous nation in really interesting ways.
1: Do you think that the polarization in our politics, meaning U.S. politics, is? Manageable, or will will we be able to uh, stitch it back together, or are the forces, the centrifugal forces, such that it it necessate uh, makes necessary some kind of new arrangement? Hard to know what that would be, but are, are we past the point of no return? I guess is the question.
0: So, when I have the privilege of lecturing occasionally at West Point, one of the first questions I like to ask the cadets is how many stars will be in the U.S. flag in 50 years? And to a cadet who is willing to give his or her life for the flag on the shoulder, that is a gut punch, right? That is a question that they are not normally asked. And the room gets very quiet. And you let that go for a little while, and then you ask a follow-up question, which is, tell me exactly how many presidents of the United States have been buried under the exact same flag they were born under? And the answer is exactly zero. There has never been a president of the United States buried under the same number of stars he was born under. And until there's a president who who is born after 1959 that dies with no change in the number of states, that will continue to be true. So you now have debates as to whether D.C. should become a state whether Puerto Rico should become a state, whether California should split, whether Texas should split, and, and it just goes on and on. So, so you could easily see changes in the core U.S. flag in the number of states. But I think the question you're asking is a question of the geography, and is it feasible that the United States could become the untied states? as is happening in so many places in Europe. I think we we haven't decided that yet. I think people underestimate the United States. I think the United States time and again bounces back after entering periods that in historical terms we look at and we say, what in the world were we thinking? But it's also true that a whole series of countries that you would never expect to become as small like the united kingdom continue to debate whether to further split and if you look at the united kingdom in call it 1905 1908 it was by far the most powerful empire on earth the dominant currency the dominant science you sun never set on the empire and it had been expanding for hundreds of years if you'd asked somebody in 1905 what do you think a map of the United Kingdom will look like, circa 2005. It's conceivable they could have gotten it slightly wrong. They probably would not have thought that this thing would shrink to the extent it shrunk. And it may continue to shrink. You know, you've got some very complicated debates out there.
1: Yeah, that was uh, the Times of London just conducted a major survey, uh, which showed that Scotland was more or less ready to declare its independence, so it's a complicated process. But, uh, but in the poll, the Scots felt that, uh, you know, disuniting from the United Kingdom wasn't a bad idea. Same pretty much for the Welsh and obviously the Irish as well. The key finding in the poll was that there was no shared sense of what it meant to be British. And so that's what you're talking about in the United States. I, I'm sort of uh, obsessed with the various secession movements: Texas, California, the Eastern Oregon, Idaho, all of that. Do you do you uh, do you pay attention to that? Do you take that seriously, or is that just sort of blowing off steam?
0: You know, I think I think the last political period has been incredibly damaging to the American fabric, and it's been incredibly damaging for a whole series of reasons, right? I mean, it's it's easy to blame one individual or blame one side, um, but there's plenty of blame to go around. That doesn't mean that individuals aren't responsible for throwing gasoline on the fire. But the fire was lit, and you have a great deal of outrage and grievance and anger on a lot of sides of the political spectrum. And they play out and they manifest in different ways. So let's do one thing. Let's take 2% of politicians or protesters or uh, angry folk or whatever you want who are really willing to do violence and truly evil. And let's just put them aside. And let's just say, okay, yes, there are people who march in Charlottesville. There are people who you know, burn down buildings, there are people who do X, Y, or Z. Let's just take that two percent and leave it in the bucket over here and let's talk about the other 98%. I start from the position that, you know, 98% of the people in this country are decent human beings. They they may completely disagree with me politically. They may have a very different set of values and education, but they're people who get up every morning and try and do their job. And they try and take care of their kids, and they try and take care of their parents, and they try to be respected by their peers. And they may have a very different viewpoint from mine on a whole series of issues. But, you know, if you ended up with a car broken on a highway, almost everybody would help you. And almost everybody, if they got to know you for a few minutes, would say, hey, come over and have a beer or come over and have a sandwich or, you know, I'll let you make a phone call we keep forgetting that there's that fundamental underlying human decency in half of the country that we're not voting with that we're not talking to that we're not respecting and and so what's happened is we've allowed the one or 2% who are truly angry and evil to polarize us to the extent where you would never ever want to talk to the other side because those people over there are baby killers or those people over there are pedophiles or those people over here are rednecks or those people over here are ignorant, you know, destroyers of X, Y, Z group. And people are more complicated than that, right? People are brought up with different values. And, and when you allow a country to divide in the way that we divide, when we sort our suburbs, our cities, so that they become more and more segregated by political opinion, when it is easier to marry in the United States today across racial lines or religious lines than it is across political lines, then you know you've got a fundamental problem. And if you don't address that fundamental problem, then you will split the nation.
1: What role do you think uh, modern business and finance play in the untying of the United States, if any?
0: Business is in a very strange position because if you look at the Edelman polls, Business has actually moved up in the last few years, in the last couple of years, in terms of more ethical and more uh, able to do things. So, government has moved down, Uh, NGOs have moved down. NGOs are seen as more ethical than business, but less able to execute. Government is seen as less able and less ethical. And so what's ended up happening is that CEOs are now expected to represent the societal values of their customers. And again, business is polarized. So you don't see a whole lot of uh, Starbucks in the same mall as, call it, the dollar store or Cracker Barrel. They, they almost tend to be opposite. Ends of the spectrum, and and business has been reasonably cautious about crossing party lines overtly. The problem is that when it does, as did Nike with the Kaepernick thing, and it is wildly successful for them, the incentive to play the same polarization game of we're we're your team and we're fighting against the other team increases. And this is going to put a squeeze on banks. It's going to put a squeeze on financial institutions. It's going to put a squeeze on CEOs because, you know, if you're not with me, you're against me in these polarized times. Right.
1: I wanted to ask you about Mexico, which you wrote about uh, in the Untied States. Um, I think you, what, you divided it into four Mexicos, indigenous in the south. Uh, Mexico City is sort of a country unto itself. Uh, northern and industrial, is that
0: right? Yes, and Baja. Um, Baja, right.
1: Where, where is it today?
0: So look, Mexico is a great country. The U.S. is a great country. It serves no one to divide Mexico, Canada, the U.S., except maybe somebody like Putin. I mean, it's in his interest. It's in nobody else's interest. That said, Mexico's always been a very complicated place. It's full of mountains, it's full of divisions, and the divisions that existed between the great Maya cultures of the Yucatan that tried to secede several times in its history, and the Aztecs in central Mexico City, and the close to Native American tribes that were in the north, and then Baja, which is almost its own peninsula, those divisions persist today. And they persist economically, they persist in terms of outlook, they sometimes persist in terms of language because you have very different languages spoken in the Yucatan and in Oaxaca um, and in the north. And the current president of Mexico is accentuating these polarization. He is somebody who is unfortunately not in favor of business, not in favor of science, not in favor of economic growth, and is alienating more and more people. And that is a very dangerous thing to do during a pandemic and during a financial crisis. You need people to pull together, not to split apart.
1: What is the impact, I guess you would say, of the cartels um, on the divisions in Mexico? Is it just, uh, just kind of a supernatural force or are they specifically aligned with any region?
0: So in the measure that there isn't a monopoly of violence by the state, then a whole series of people take lawlessness and establish their own rule of law. And the rule of law that the cartels have established over a third and perhaps a half of Mexico is absolutely terrifying. The number of people who are dying in cartel-related kidnappings, extortions, shootouts, tortures, disappearances, is escalating and has been escalating for decades. And the use of the army has been less and less effective to stop this stuff. So, part of the violence you see in Mexico today is a whole series of cartels fighting for geographic supremacy in places that they didn't occupy. So, as the cartel from Sinaloa gets weaker, the cartels from the south or from the Gulf expand north. Um, As a leader is arrested in X, then other leaders come in and say, well, I'll take over what they call the plaza, the transit point. And this is especially acute along the border. So you probably do not want to go and have a beer in Tamaulipas these days from Texas. Um, Bad idea. You probably don't want to head to a series of places in Chihuahua or Michoacán or Colima. Bad idea. And so Mexico ends up being this fragmented place where the state has control over some of its territory and very little control over other parts of the territory. And other parts of the territory is negotiated. So you can act like you control, but I really control. And that, that is a very dangerous thing for a country to live through because it, uh, it fragments.
1: Is there essentially a republic of cartel and it's just a matter of who emerges on top after protracted war?
0: You know, it's, it, it, this is something which we could discuss for two hours, the logic of this stuff. Um, there's an absolutely incredible author called Don Winslow Yes, who has written a trilogy about the cartels and the history of the cartels, and it's it's well worth watching um, or reading. He, he's extraordinary in terms of the detail into which he goes, but but it's a it's a process of deterioration of the legitimacy and power of the state, and so what starts being a state that regulates and maintains order becomes a state that participates in. Uh, protecting or even acting as the narcos, and then it ends up being a state that in the measure it tries to it gets overwhelmed, takes out the heads of the cartel, and when you take out the heads of the cartel who were incredibly violent, incredibly nasty criminals, but were also businessmen who wanted to build big cartels then what you've got left underneath is a whole series of lieutenants who are. Whose modus operandi is violence first, as opposed to negotiation or payoffs first. And and what that does is it just increases the violence and the bloodshed on a massive scale, because these are not folks who are trying to build a business. These are folks who are trying to establish physical dominance, because that's what their job was. If, if you go back to the old wonderful movie, The Godfather, The Godfather was a bloodthirsty SOB. But it would be very different to have that particular mafia run by the Godfather or run by the assassin Luca Brazzi, right? Luca had one job and he did it very well. He was a killer and everybody was terrified of, him. but he was not the strategist. He was not the person who had some sense of how to reduce violence, how to, you know, negotiate, how to build a business, um, And and what's ended up happening in Mexico and a lot of Central America is it's become a brutal version of Lord of the Flies.
1: Back in the day when we first met, uh, I was writing a column for the Boston Globe and you helped me uh, parse the referendum on the Quebecois, whether Quebec uh, should secede from Canada. That uh, has gone away, but what we call Wexit uh, has come alive. How seriously do you take Wexit in Canada?
0: People make the mistake of thinking that Canada is very boring. And Canada, I think, is one of the most interesting countries in the world. Um, and, And I really don't say that facetiously. The amount of centripetal force exercised on that country and the ability of that country to keep itself together I think is an extraordinary example to the rest of the world. Um, The the ability to absorb immigrants and treat them and bring them up to standards of living, extraordinary. And and so people don't realize how close Canada came, part of Canada, to being a US state or two. Just after World War II, there had been this extraordinary connectivity between Newfoundland and uh, Halifax and the United States. And part of it was that, you know, airplanes were based there, ships went through there, enormous amount of troop movements, enormous amount of intermarriage. And, you know, all those maritime states um, had been very close since English times, even after the English American Wars. There were, you know, family connections across both sides. And Roosevelt used to sit on Campobello Island and just, So, what happens just after the war is Newfoundland and that whole area thought, should we really be a part of Canada? Should we be independent? Should we be part of the United States? And it was actually taken to a vote. And it was very close that that part of Canada almost became a part of the United States. Then you had the Quebecois. And... Folks who felt that their culture had been completely disrespected, um, started arguing for a French-only nation, which would have split Canada in two. Right, you would have had the Maritimes, and you would have had all of Western Canada, and you would have had to trade across an independent nation. Fortunately, that was put to bed, and it was expensive, and it was difficult, and everybody has to speak some French, and the French have to give up some of their rights, the French-speaking Canadians. But they reached a compromise, and most of that has gone away. Now there's the issue with the West. So the West has tremendous amounts of resources and is more conservative in Canadian terms, not in American terms, than the rest of the country. And they would like more control over the gas, over the coal, over the extractive resources. It's an economy that looks like Montana, Wyoming, Idaho. in Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba. So, yes, there is a movement out there, um, especially when British Columbia, they feel acts like California and has gone completely left. Um, I don't think Canada is going to split. I think it'll make noises about it. But I think Canada remains an example of how not to split. And I think more people should study Canada. Because it's it's a much better alternative to what's happening in many other countries.
1: There was some good news on that. I thought with uh, Trudeau yesterday surviving the no confidence vote, um, which I thought would have been uh, you know a bad omen, so to speak. I wanted to ask you about sovereign nations inside uh, the borders of the United States, uh, the Native American sovereign states. You once told me that you could drive from point A to point B and go through, I can't remember how many sovereign states, but I I always liked that data point. Can you share that with us?
0: I don't remember the exact number now, but it is, people don't understand there are over 400 sovereign countries inside the United States. And I don't mean sovereign in the facetious sense. I mean sovereign in the sense that in legal terms in treaty terms, they have a right to their own governance. They have the right to their own courts. They have the right to their own medical systems. They have the right to their own environmental laws. They have the right to hunt and fish and approve businesses in ways that none of the citizens of the United States can have. And that's why you have the largest or one of the largest casinos in the United States inside a state that will not allow citizens of that state to have a casino which is Connecticut so here you've got the state and ostensibly it is one state but it's not right because it has a sovereign state inside it and and the more you drive west the more sovereign states you find as you drive through california towards you know nevada you, you go through a whole series of sovereign states and us law has been incredibly disrespectful of these sovereign states. You might say, okay, so what? That's a long time ago, except that these are laws that come back to bite you. So if you look at what happened in New Zealand, if you look at what happened in Australia, if you look at what's happened in Canada, some of those treaties and laws weren't respected for centuries. And all of a sudden, the payback is really high. You owe me for all the mining rights that you extracted and didn't pay. You owe me for all the gas rights. You owe me for taking over X, Y, Z. Um, this is a debate we have not had in the United States.
1: Is there a litigation proceeding uh, for the tribes?
0: Well, there has been litigation for centuries over this stuff, right? I mean, we, when you talk about genocide, What happened to the Native Americans is on a scale that is comparable to almost anything that's happened anywhere else as a percentage of the population. And the amount of people that died, either by being killed or from diseases or from hunger, um, is absolutely astronomical. And when we go and we recognize the Armenians and what they went through, it would also be good if we took a look at our own history and said, "Hey." We really did not do decently by the people who were Native Americans. Um, And when we talk about this whole immigration debate, in the United States, you're either a Native American, or you were brought as a slave, or you were an immigrant. And that's about it, right? I, I, I can't think of another category.
1: But is there legislation pending in federal court on any of these issues that you know of?
0: Oh, there, there is lawsuits everywhere. There's lawsuits over land reparations. There's lawsuits over um, treaty obligations on mining rights, the royalties of which were never paid. There is, uh, you know, there's lawsuits over whether national parkland actually belongs to Native Americans. There's lawsuits. There is an incredible amount of suits going on out there. And in the measure that more and more native americans get law degrees um, and begin to read the law they're saying hang on for one second we actually had the right to x we actually were promised y we actually deserve x by treaty right by contract
1: right
0: and and yeah that contract law is being litigated and will be litigated more and more again as has happened in australia and canada and new zealand
1: so, one of them is going to break then I mean, one is going to be ruled in their favor, and then that will be the precedent for the others,
0: right? Well, you already saw that right the The first big lawsuits were over things like casinos, right, and so once the first casino within a sovereign nation broke, then you had the precedent to put casinos all over the United States on sovereign nations right there There has been a a theft of land, royalties, rights, the likes of which are, are hard to comprehend.
1: I wanted to ask you about uh, currencies, uh, specifically cryptocurrencies. It seems to me that one of the things that stitched together the United States forever was the almighty dollar. And now you have you know Bitcoin and others uh, being adopted to the point that you can buy a Tesla with Bitcoin. But it seems to me that a lot of different tribes, if you will, have incentive to uh, essentially switch to cryptocurrencies, Silicon Valley obviously being one of them, uh, but also uh, Native American tribes, uh, drug cartels, et cetera. Is that that where we're headed Uh, with with sort of, uh, not bifurcated, but multi currency, uh, based economies in the U S.
0: So, you know, the, the pieces of paper you have, um, in your wallet are backed by the full faith and credit of the United States. and in the measure that you weaken us institutions in the measure that the U S government, the U S Congress becomes less and less of a legitimate, trusted entity. And, and again, I'm not just blaming one individual for that. I'm not blaming one particular period for that. There's been a decline in trust in U.S. institutions for a long time. And if you take that trust and that's already dropping, and you accentuate it by saying, you know, we've been allies with you since the 1940s and now we're just going to cut you off. Or we've traded with you in this way and now we're just going to cut you off. Or we're going to act in a way which is really insulting. Then a debtor nation, which owes a lot of these countries a lot of money, may find that those other countries prefer to hold their national reserves in a different currency in the measure that you increase your deficits year after year after year. And now it seems trivial to have $1 trillion bailout package and then a second trillion dollar bailout package, then a third trillion dollar bailout package. There comes a point where you say, what the hell is this money? And what's it worth? And I think we're in a period which is a really dangerous period because anytime you have a financial bubble the words you keep hearing are, this time it's different. So yes, deficits used to matter. Yes, having somewhat of a balanced budget used to matter. Yes, but this time it's different. And you have a whole series of economists out there who are preaching that because you've got low interest rates and because you have you know all these needs and because the money circulates, and yada, 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 this time deficits don't matter. I've never seen a period where you can have unlimited spending on your credit. And somebody doesn't eventually say, stop. And you've got to go back to an interview that Bill Clinton had when they asked him, when were you truly scared or what were you truly scared of during your presence? Was it X or was it Y or was it Z? And his answer was no. The the one really scary thing was the bond markets. And bond markets are sleepy places and you don't think about bonds and you don't think about this and the other until you do. Because when the bond markets wake up, when they don't fund your munis, when they don't fund your treasuries, when they don't fund your local infrastructure, because the credit and belief in credit has eroded, it gets really scary really fast. And at the current levels of debt, if you ever had, say, a 1% or 2% spike in interest rates, <laughs> then you go back to what Buffett used to say, you, you never know who's swimming without a bathing suit till the tide goes up. And here you'd see the tide go out pretty fast. Um, and boy, it would be expensive. So, so look, what you're seeing in the financial sector is a whole series of red flags, right? You've pointed out many times, John, with what's happening in pensions and pension liabilities. You've pointed out many times in what's happening in the repo markets. You've pointed out many times in what's happening with the rise of alternative currencies of people desperately seeking a safe harbor, even in these instruments that are created out of thin air, that don't have the full faith and credit of any government line. And I don't just wanna pick on the US, right? I mean, China's banking system has some really interesting shadows in it. Europe, wow. If you have very little growth and very high deficits, and you keep bailing out people who get into trouble that then don't reform and grow, it becomes very complicated.
1: Well, Juan, it was great to talk to you. Thank you for doing this show. We are going to have you back. In the meantime, thanks again.
0: Great to see you, John. Thank you. John Ellis here
1: again. Thanks so much for listening. Tune in again on Monday through Thursday next week for our regular episodes where Rebecca and I discuss geopolitics, finance, science, and technology.